Hebrews chapter 8, as we continue in the study of this part of the Bible, it's going to help us think about how we deal with change. How do we respond when things don't go the way that we expect? Do we always like change? Well, it depends on what the change is, isn't it? The reality is that our world changes. We can't help that fact. Kids get older and parents know that just when you start figuring out sleep schedules and the way to get them fed, they change, don't they? The older that we get, we see more and more change, not just in the world, but even in our own lives, especially the older that we get when it comes to our own health. Perhaps even like me, you look at some of the violence that's been happening here in Monterey. And it challenges you to think what is needed in order to end such terrible things. How do we address the problems that need to stop? Well, today, God speaks right into that here in Hebrews chapter 8. In fact, for the very first Christians who would have received this a few thousand years ago, they were having trouble when it comes to the changes that Jesus brought to the way they live, to the way they worshipped. They were used to eating a certain way, dressing a certain way, conducting business, all according to the Bible up to that point. And now in light of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, just as we celebrated this morning, there were new things brought into the way they worshipped. Which is going to challenge us as we think about how we address the changes that need to happen, not just in the world, but even in our own lives. Well, even as we heard read for us, as kind of a statement to get our attention, Verse number one says the point of what we are saying is this. This is a, a way like a good teacher would say, the main point that I'm trying to make is this. The heart of the matter. Or even if you're talking with somebody and they seem to go on and on, you might be wondering and thinking, okay, can you just get to the point? What is the point of what we're supposed to see in all this? Well, the point when it came to the changes that were being experienced wasn't to look back and just see what God has already done in history. The point isn't just for them to look forward into the changes that need to happen. But as we see here, the point for all of us is to look up. Look to see where Jesus is right now. He is the high priest, seated on high, the throne of majesty. We look up to see what is needed in our lives. That Jesus brings his excellence, the excellence of heaven, 
to help us see how that affects the way we view this world. The point for them was to settle for anything less would just be imitations. What's being addressed here is to look back to see as great as it was in history for God's people Israel to be freed from the slavery in Egypt, one way that they were able to experience worship in their lives was through the tabernacle, as we saw described there. It was an exciting place in history. But the point being made was to say that this wasn't it. The tabernacle was a temporary way for them to worship. They had to build it according to God's specifications, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet uh, 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 high. But the idea was that it was packed up to be portable until one day God allowed that to be the temple in Jerusalem. And as exciting as it was for them to worship in the temple, there is no temple there in Jerusalem today that's an active place of worship. The reason why is each of those things were pointing forward to the coming of Jesus who came with his excellence so that we don't settle for anything less. In fact, Jesus describes very simply why it is that we don't worship today in the temple in Jerusalem. And this would have gotten their attention to help them understand the changes that were needed in their lives, especially when it comes to understanding God. In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, says, Then the Jews demanded of him what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They demanded to know who Jesus truly was, asking for some spiritual sign. And Jesus rightfully predicted his own death and to show evidence of the finished work upon the cross. He also predicted his resurrection from the dead. To show us, as it says in verse 21, it was no longer about the temple there in Jerusalem. Jesus was saying the temple, the tabernacle, pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, who died in our place for sin. And even as we see here, the religious leaders, the Jewish people of the day, struggled with this. They said it took 46 years to build that temple. The idea for us is to see that Jesus is the true temple better than anything else that anyone could create. But this challenges us to think when it comes to seeing change in our own lives and in this world, we need to make sure that we are inviting God's majesty 
his excellence so that we don't settle for our own attempts at perfectionism. The idea is if we don't watch it, we can start to try to think that we want change according to our own purposes. Anything less are just glimpses, just shadows of the true reality of who God is and what Jesus has done. Very practically speaking, I once heard someone say they described their life as a recovering perfectionist. I wondered what that meant, and they went on to say that they wanted good in their life. Well, that sounds wonderful. I think we would all want good to happen in our life. But the problem with this is that when we start to think that we know the good for others, that we try to solve other people's problems, and if we take it to the full conclusion, even when it comes to faith, what it, what it does is it leads to the conclusion wrongfully that God will only accept us if we try harder, if we do better. The difficulty is, as we think about our lives and our world, is that there are certain jobs that require following great detail. The problem is, is that it doesn't work that way when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship to others. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a professor of mine, a Bible teacher, who once shared that after grading papers all day, he was so used to trying to correct grammar mistakes that one day he went home to find that his son had written him a card, probably for Father's Day. And without thinking, this professor took the card and proceeded to write all the mistakes grammarly that happened on that card, only for him to catch what he was doing and missing the point entirely. That was about his son and his son's love for him. We should be grateful. That's not how God demands of our life. Certainly, as we're going to continue to see, there are changes that we wish would happen in our hearts and in our world. But ultimately, Jesus came to redefine how we see ourselves and how we see God's love. In fact, as we continue in Hebrews chapter 8, we'll look at verses 6 through 9. That tells us another important thing about how to deal with change and the right change that God brings. Picking back up again in verse 6, it says, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The house of Israel and with the house of Judah will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So when it comes to understanding the right changes that need to happen here in these few verses, we see the word covenant mentioned a few times to get our attention to ask what that means. Now, in English, it's not a word that we use often. It's only one that perhaps comes up religiously like this when it comes to the Bible. In, e in Spanish, as I'm learning Espanol, 
think it might be a little bit easier, it's the word pacto. Sounds like the word in English, pact. It tells us that God in history has made agreements, and not just a handshake agreement, but, but a lasting, binding, covenantal promise that certain times and in, in places, God, when it came time to describing for us the changes that needed to happen, he defined it through these pact covenants. The idea here is that the old covenant had been broken. God's people, Israel, did not remain faithful to what God said needed to be happened. The old covenant here is in reference to the laws of God. When God met with Moses to help describe how his people, and really for us, how we can understand the right way to live. The idea is that the old covenant had been broken, and now Jesus came with a new superior covenant, a better way. So here they are, God's people now hearing about the new covenant with Jesus, wondering, what do we do with the old covenant? How does it help our lives in light of Jesus? Well, for that, what we're meant to see is that the Bible points out to us, the laws, commands of God, point out for us our need for change. But the reality is just knowing the commands of God, just knowing about them isn't enough to live them out. In fact, the entire book of Romans describes this, but particularly, we'll take a look at a few places in Romans chapter 7 that help us to understand that practically. When Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, it says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covenant. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from, from law, sin is dead. See, the idea here is that God's commands, the laws of God, the Bible, point out for us what is right and what is sin. But it cannot create the change that we need. It shows us our need for Jesus, for a Savior. And in fact, even as we identified, it points out to us, it reveals to us what's wrong with our world. That question often comes up, and perhaps you've sat in classes and philosophy courses where they tried to wonder what's wrong with the world. Maybe even had discussions with friends or family to wonder, how can we solve these world problems? Well, there's a classic example from history from a man named G.K. Chesterton back in the 1800s. Maybe you've heard this one. I, since I had heard it, it stuck with me because he was a Christian and he was an author and he enjoyed writing and contemplating these things, but back in England in his day, in the 1800s, there was a newspaper that asked that precise question, what's wrong with the world? And they invited people to write in different responses, and they got many. And one by one, they would publish these responses. So 
They had people who were teachers and scientists who studied and maybe politicians who, who wrote their answers to try to solve all the world's problems. But G.K. Chesterton famously now wrote in his response that was published. He said, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am. It was the shortest response, probably the most profound. And what sticks out to us about that is because he doesn't just mean that G.K. Chesterton was the only problem with the world, right? What's implied is that each of us, not just looking around and pointing at the finger at all the problems, but looking within our own heart to realize that each of us need that change. But here's, and even as we see here in Romans 7, some of these commands and laws, I'm sure even just kind of looking at the world, we might be able to come up with, right? We'd be able to look and say, well, we certainly wouldn't want anybody to murder. I think maybe everyone should agree on that one. Well, we don't think people should steal. But the example given in Romans 7 to prove this point is that apart from God, we wouldn't know the right way to live to get our attention. It's pointed out the 10th command of the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. You should not covet. That's a command that certainly gets our attention. To say when it came time for God to tell us how we ought to live, our failure to live, God says that we shouldn't even desire after what isn't ours. We should resist, have nothing to do with this jealousy within our own hearts. These Ten Commandments in recent years have been neglected. I think we would do good to go back to them. In fact, as I was thinking about that a few years ago, starting with the Ten Commandments in a previous church and few of us Bible teachers went through and Sunday by Sunday we preached through each 10 for 10 weeks. Towards the end I had one older church member come up to me and say, Zach, I'm going to be honest with you. When you said we we're going to go through the Ten Commandments, I've been a Christian since I was a young boy and I thought this is kid stuff. I already know that, but he said week by week God changed his heart in thinking about it to realize it's one thing to know them. It's another thing to understand why they're important and also our failure to live them, including this one. If it wasn't for the Ten Commandments, we would probably completely neglect the need to avoid jealousy. But just knowing the commands of God won't change us. In fact, even as we see described here, it can even frustrate us at times. To help us understand that, and my apologies, I try not to give too much Bible reading in one time, in one sitting, but in this case, I think it lends well to say if we continue in chapter 7, if we pick up in verse 17, the Apostle Paul continues by God's authority and inspiration to say, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do this, but it is sin living in me. I know that I am that nothing good lives in me that that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For whatever I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, 
This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I that do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in, the, in God's laws. But I see another law at work in my, the member of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And his conclusion, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the, the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And to complete this, carrying on to chapter 8, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Many have wondered what he's describing here. Some are saying that this happened perhaps maybe before he became a Christian. But ultimately, it lends to that same conclusion. That this is more than just our own desire for perfection. It cries out for us that, that deep down desire for, for real and lasting change to happen. But it concludes by saying that there is no other way for us to be saved than through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which carries right in to chapter 8. Which could really summarize all of that, couldn't it? That therefore there is now no condemnation. Which means regardless of what you're going through, those times where we perhaps feel exhausted from trying to identify the right thing to do and struggling with not wanting to do the, the wrong things that we know we shouldn't. Perhaps even deep down we feel fearful of what others might think of us if they saw who we truly were in our hearts. And sometimes outwardly we can make it look like everything is fine, but deep down we can hear echoed within us some of those same struggles. The reality is, if you have trusted Jesus by faith because of grace, these words are true from you. There is now no condemnation. The new covenant, the new promise packed from Jesus himself is that we never have to feel condemned. We never have to fear being found out for failures all because of the love of Jesus. And as I was thinking about that, that word condemned, I was reminded back in late high school that I was invited to come and be a part of a group in the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they had people in their city who were not able to fix up their homes. And so the city said, if you do not fix up your homes. They're too dangerous to live in. The conditions were so bad that the homes were going to be condemned. These homeowners, some of them were too old to fix up their home. Many didn't have friends or family to fall back on. Didn't have the money required to fix up their homes. So what was amazing is there was a group of Christians who 
started inviting people to come to help fix up their homes. Sometimes it required tearing down things that were unsafe so that the repairs could be made. What I remember is not just seeing their relief from their homes not being condemned, but also to ask that question, why would people come and do this and do it for free? Well, here we're told a motivation for all of our lives when it comes to our sin, when it comes to even wanting to do good. The reality is that each of us deserve to be condemned by the most holy God. But instead of leaving us alone, praise be to Christ Jesus who came and was condemned for us so that now we do not have to live with the fear of being condemned. We're free to live, to love, to work, to enjoy all that God has given. For now there is no condemnation. Finally, as we finish Romans chapter 8 together, look at verses 10 through 13, these last three verses, point out to us a final way that we can see real lasting change in our lives. Verse 10 picks up, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. My apologies. That's Romans chapter 8, isn't it? Thank you for not correcting me. My previous church, I would have had somebody right away. Pastor, it's the wrong verse. Well, we pick up in verse 10 through 13, Hebrews chapter 8. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after the time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a brother, man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So this was God's plan for our lives. That God was faithful to the promises that he made for the coming of Jesus. The old covenant is now fulfilled in Christ. And the way that we know that and see that is that God no longer writes these laws externally. He puts them on our hearts. He writes them in our thinking so that we are his people and he is our God. This is all quoted from Jeremiah chapter 31, which dates back to 600 B.C., a dark time in history when God's people had failed to live the way they ought and were then exiled, punished, no longer to worship freely, all because they misunderstood who God is. But now we see, according to Hebrews chapter 8, that the old ways are, are now obsolete. It's no longer about do this, do that, or else. The reality is that Jesus has come 
to change our hearts, change the way we think, so that we can know that we are His. It's no longer about trying to do do more, to be better, to force these changes. The reality is if we try to do them on our own, we'll end up being frustrated, just as we saw back in, in Romans. The reality is if we don't watch it, we can miscommunicate this in the way that we live this out. I once heard about a gentleman who was attending a Christian college, university, and he got caught disobeying the rules. Surprisingly, they didn't kick him out, but what he said they did to him was worse. He said they shunned him, they ignored him, they wouldn't talk to him. And as hard as that was, strangely enough, some of his friends that also did what he did, who didn't get caught, they also shunned him. They also ignored him. He said what it did was reinforce to him is that what he needs to do is just be better, try harder, live perfectly. Instead of realizing what Jesus says over and over, what the Bible says over and over, is that true, real, lasting change starts in our hearts. This gentleman realized he needed to change, but he wasn't given an opportunity to make those changes. See, as we listen to God's word, as we rely on his spirit, he changes our thinking, he changes our hearts. So that even if we don't change, the reality is God still loves us anyway. What it means to follow Jesus under the new covenant, the new promises that we are gifted, is that it's not just about trying harder. It's not just about doing better. The issue isn't just about focusing on change in ourselves and in others. The focus needs to be on God's love. And the amazing thing is, when we experience more and more of God's love through Jesus, we will see change happen. So even as we finish this morning, in fact, even as I thought about that, reading the wrong verse this morning challenges me. Because sometimes when I prepare as a pastor to give sermons, I can find myself starting to focus on what words I want to say, what illustrations I want to give. And then immediately I'm convicted and thankfully reminded humbly that God reminds me that it's not me that creates the change. It's not just me trying to figure out how to say the right things and do the right things. But it's stepping aside to let God's perfect word speak to each of us. For him to create the change that we need. And the beautiful thing is that God does promise to do that. And the change that we do need to see is the change from thinking that outwardly we just need to do the right thing. The change internally to recognize that we live by grace and by grace alone. Would you join me again this morning as we turn to the Lord in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
that you didn't leave us alone in our sin, that you created each and every one of us, that you have a plan and purpose, not just for this world, but that includes the difficult times, that includes the mistakes that we make, that instead of fearing that we're going to be punished when we say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, Thank you that Jesus paid for every sin upon the cross. Which means when we trust by faith in who Jesus is, and we invite you to help us, then we see glimpses of your excellence. But God, would you help us to guard our hearts, to guide our, guard our thinking, from just trying to demand our own ways. From trying to live selfishly for our own purposes. But instead to lay that down. To pray your kingdom come. For more of heaven to be a part of this world. That we so eagerly look forward to seeing completed for all of eternity. God, we pray for the country of Mexico. We pray for Monterey. We pray for safety. Just as we pray for places in the world where there are people who are not able to even gather like this out of fear for their own life. We can take comfort to know that you promise to be with us, to guide us, our great refuge and strength, solid rock upon which we stand. We give you thanks, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.